0: Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brook, and this is Eyes Only. Three men search the ground in front of them. Their flashlights sweep back and forth, scanning the ice beneath their feet. All three of them are experienced in the treacherous terrain that they are traversing. None more than their leader, a man named James Smith. Smith had spent much of his career in the Arctic, He feels at home on the ice, yet today he is scared. It is daytime, yet they are in the polar night. For months on end, the sun never shines. It is complete darkness 24-7, and they are in the middle of it. Accompanying Smith is a Roman Catholic priest named Father Cunningham and a meteorologist named Arnold Hansen. They proceed carefully, measuring every step. They know the danger they are facing. One wrong step means, at best, a fight for your life, and at worst, certain death. The ice beneath their feet is breaking apart. They still have over a mile to go. It seems like hours until they reach their destination. The single airstrip that their arctic camp relies on. Spreading 50 feet apart, they begin to walk down the runway. Hansen's light catches something. Something terrible. The beginning of a crack. They follow it and their worst fears are realized. The airstrip has been split in two by a giant pressure ridge in the ice. Their entire camp is splitting apart beneath them and their only means of rescue has just been split in two. Standing there, Smith takes in the situation. He had just been put in charge of one of the most remote arctic drift stations the U.S. had. It was now his job to keep the 19 men under his watch alive. And at this moment, he doesn't know how he's going to do that. If the darkness ever felt suffocating, it is now more than ever. Daylight is not coming. They will have to do this in the dark. Hundreds of miles away in Greenland, Brigadier General Gordon Austin, commander of the 11th Air Division, receives a distress call. An urgent request for evacuation from Arctic Ice Drift Station Alpha. This request would become his number one priority for the next couple of days, which is exactly the problem. Even in good weather, an evacuation of this scale takes at least two days. There is no way a plane capable of that big of an operation could land on that airstrip. It is 1958, and no helicopter has the range to reach their camp. The ability to refuel a helicopter in flight has not been developed yet. A smaller plane might be able to land on one half of the airstrip, yet no one likes that idea. It is risky. The kind of pressure ridges that have destroyed the airstrip create lateral cracking when they form. There is no guarantee that the ice would hold, yet it is the only option. A plan is put into place for a smaller plane to attempt the rescue. It could only carry people. The most classified items and equipment would go, but everything else would be left, never to be recovered. It is a worst-case scenario, but Commander Austin understands the urgency of the situation. This whole situation was due to a massive storm that had struck the camp recently. It was a horrifying night, as the storm ripped open gashes in the ice. If you can imagine not knowing if at any moment the ground beneath you can open up, this is the reality they faced. The crew of Alpha Station would work for 24 hours straight, moving their entire camp off compromised sections of the ice and onto sections that were more stable. Sections that were now giving in. A reality only made worse by the fact that the storms would keep coming. The airstrip was only originally half a mile away from the camp. The third storm that hit fractured the ice so bad that the airstrip was now a mile and a half away. It had moved over a mile in one night. The fourth storm that ripped through their camp is the one that destroyed it. Forty percent of the ice flow they drifted on had been destroyed. The severity of the situation was only increasing as time went on. Almost immediately after Smith sent that distress call, he was rocked off balance as the ground lurched underneath him. Stepping out of the communications tent, Smith clicked on his flashlight and discovered a new crack running the full length of their camp. There was a joke that had been made about these cracks a few days earlier, 10 feet wide and 10,000 feet deep. It was not as funny these days. There was a reason Smith found himself in this situation, a reason why they were in one of the most remote places on earth. That reason has to do with what was lurking below in the icy depths. There's a story that showcases the reason why these men were risking their lives. At that time, no one at Alpha Station had any idea how close the world would come to disaster. The kind of disaster they were hoping to safeguard against. The temperature inside the Soviet Foxtrot B-59 submarine is rising. The air conditioning has broken. In the sweltering heat, the crew brace for a dark future. A U.S. naval fleet is chasing it. Naval depth charges explode around it, trying to force it to the surface. Inside, its crew doesn't know the truth about what is happening. The sub's batteries are running low, and the crew's captain believes World War III has just begun. It has nearly been two weeks since our last communication with Moscow, and this sub has a unique secret. It is one of the few Soviet-class submarines that is authorized to launch a nuclear strike against the U.S. without orders from Russia. In this moment, the man in charge of the submarine, a man by the name of Captain Valentin Savinsky, believes it is his duty to launch a nuclear strike against the U.S. Navy. The political officer on board, a man named Ivan Melosinikov, agrees, which is crucial, because he is part of the process to launch. To avoid the U.S. Navy fleet chasing them, they have gone too deep to receive radio signals. If they could, they would know that they are dead wrong. It is October 27, 1962, the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Not long before this, the U.S. had discovered Soviet nuclear weapons in Cuba, just 60 miles off the coast of the U.S. The situation that followed is possibly the closest the world has ever come to that doomsday clock striking midnight. Yet it didn't. Kennedy and Khrushchev negotiated both their nations off the edge of the cliff. World War III did not break out. A naval blockade had been set up around Cuba, and the U.S. was dropping non-lethal depth charges to force all Soviet submarines near Cuba to the surface. Not to sink them, but to tell them to go home. Inside the Foxtrot, the situation is appearing more and more hopeless. Cut off from the world, the only opinions being heard are those inside the submarine. There is only one voice of reason. Second in command is a man named Vasily Arkhipov. He is the last person who has to sign off on a strike. One decision away from starting a nuclear war. In that moment, he is the sole person standing in the way of mutually assured destruction. Inside the dying submarine, the carbon dioxide levels are rising dangerously. The temperature has reached 100 degrees. In the sweltering heat, the three men begin to argue. The submarine rocks left and right as explosions detonate on either side of it. There's a massive explosion that causes the whole sub to shudder. It is in this moment the Captain Savinsky makes a chilling statement. That's it, the end, he says. Maybe the war has already started up there. We're gonna blast them now. We will die, but we will sink them all. We will not become the shame of the fleet. Yet he cannot do anything without Arkhipov. The exact words Arkhipov said that day are still somewhat of a mystery. He was a level-headed and intelligent man. At least that is how his wife describes him. The world owes him a debt of gratitude for that. He seemed to understand what was happening. Decades later, an intelligence officer who watched the argument unfold shed some light on what happened. Arkhipov seemed to see what the U.S. was doing. He reportedly told the captain that if they wanted to blow us out of the water, they could. To him, this didn't feel like war. He demanded they surface and await orders from Moscow. Without Arkhipov, clearance to launch couldn't happen. They had no choice but to surface, so they did. The world presses on. New York is still a thriving metropolis, not wiped out by nuclear war. Washington, D.C. did not disappear under a mushroom cloud. These are the situations that would have happened if Arkhipov had pushed that switch, yet he didn't. He would return home and see his wife again, and they would grow old together. He would die of cancer in 1998, most likely due to the radiation exposure he experienced in his service to the USSR. He would not receive much appreciation for his decision that day, while he was still alive. In 2017, the Future Life Award was given to his family. His wife went to her grave claiming he was her hero. In her own words, he saved the world. It would be decades before the public learned about how close we had come to disaster, or who they had to thank for preventing it. Arthur Slazinger Jr., an advisor for the John F. Kennedy administration and a historian, summed up the event in a statement. This was not only the most dangerous moment of the Cold War, it was the most dangerous moment in human history. His view is shared by many other historians, and that slow burn that led up to this moment had been forecasted. The U.S. knew the danger these submarines posed perhaps mainly because they had submarines with the same kind of weapons. These submarines were why James Smith found himself a few hundred miles from the North Pole, trying to orchestrate a daring rescue. The Arctic had become a new frontier in the Cold War. It was the shortest distance between the United States and Russia. Both countries were playing a cat and mouse game in the Arctic Circle. Starting in the early 1950s, they both had developed submarines that were capable of launching a nuclear missile. These submarines would spend months submerged under the Arctic ice, ready to strike at a minute's notice. In an effort to track each other's movements, both countries created a line of Arctic drift stations that stretched along the length of the Arctic Circle. The Soviets had them as well. Both sides would use them to gather scientific data yet they would also use radar and listening devices to track each other's submarines below, all in the hopes of avoiding the kind of situation like the one that would happen less than three years later. There is no guarantee that the next time a single voice of reason would prevail. Smith understood his mission. He knew the stakes, and that's why, in 1958, at Alpha Station, it pained him so much to abandon his post. But there was no other choice. It had been a day since they discovered the damage to the airstrip, and tensions were running high. Smith knew the most important thing he needed to do was keep up morale. He ordered the cook to prepare the best meals they had, only served the choice, select cuts of meat in the mess hall. He broke the news to his crew that they should expect anywhere from three to six days before being evacuated. Yet, if they were stuck there, they were going to at least eat well. Leaving the mess hall, Smith stepped out into the darkness. Making his way to the edge of camp, he stood there and he listened for what he knew he would hear. A soft rumbling followed by vibrations, sharp cracks grinding and crashes as large pieces of ice were being forced up, broken and tumbled. He just needed it to hold for just a little bit longer. The next morning, Smith made the hazardous trip to the airfield by himself. He wanted to inspect it. When he got there, he discovered that it had broken into more pieces. But the main long strip they needed was still intact. Luck is with us, he told himself. That luck was about to change. The station meteorologist notified him when he returned that another storm was coming, one very similar to the one that had started all of this it is very unlikely that they would make it through the second one. The evacuation had to happen now or not at all. Captain Joe Sullivan sat behind the controls of a C-123. He was en route to Alpha Station. In the darkness, he had no horizon or depth perception for reference. He was relying completely on his radio altimeter. The reality is he lived for this. He was glad he got the mission. Yet, he was out of his depth. At Alpha Station, the crew made the treacherous trip to the airfield, carrying all the scientific data and classified equipment with them. A series of flares were laid down to mark the safe section of the runway. As Sullivan approached the camp, he could see his landing marked by the flares. It was shorter than he liked. The flares were only good for 20 minutes. There was zero margin for error. A reality compounded by the fact that he had never landed on ice in the dark before. Lining up, he came in for the landing. The wheels connected with the ice. Sullivan gave it full power and lifted off again. Confident the ice would hold, he came in for the landing. Smith watched the plane disappear in a thick cloud of snow. When it cleared up, the plane was still there. Darting back and forth in the dying light of the flares, everyone loaded the gear and climbed aboard. Standing in the fuselage of the plane, Smith counted his men by name. Now was not the time to leave someone behind. He gave Sullivan the thumbs up. The engines kicked into full gear and the plane lurched forward. Smith felt the familiar and beautiful feeling of liftoff. He had spent most of World War II in the air. He loved it and this time it felt especially good. Left behind was a sort of arctic ghost town their personal belongings, and everything they relied on to live was left in place, waiting to be swallowed up by the sea or perhaps just to drift on sections of ice for years to come. The Air Force had officially just abandoned a top-secret facility. It would be hidden in the dark, yet when the polar day happens in a few months, the bright sun will shine on it 24-7, day and night. They could only hope no one would figure out how to visit it. A few years later, in 1961, the same scenario would happen to a Soviet Arctic Drift Station. The story is similar to Alpha Station, yet worse. The Russians would leave most everything behind. They were lucky to escape. The ghost town they left appeared to hold secrets that would give the US a look at their highly classified operations. A Navy scientist would decide it was a good idea to parachute down onto the ice and investigate. He convinced Top Brass to embark on what would be codenamed Project Cold Feet. No plane could land. They were going to need to use a new device, one never used in the field before. An extraction technique so unusual, it seems like something out of a movie. That is because you might have seen it in the James Bond film Thunderball. It was used to pull Bond and his companion, Domino Vitali off of a life raft and into the back of a moving plane. The device is called the Skyhook. The movie used stage dummies. It's unclear if people understood at the time how much of a real thing it actually was. Over the North Pole, it was about to get its first real operational use for the CIA. There was just a problem. The scientists behind the plan had never even jumped out of an airplane before. They needed someone to get him down and out again safely. There was a man with the perfect skill set. He was an experienced jump master who also happened to be a Russian linguist. That man's name is James Smith, and he couldn't resist the invitation. My next episode is going to tell the story of the Skyhook. Things would not go exactly as planned. Check out my next episode, and thanks for listening.